to everything. Turn, turn, turn. There Welcome is a season, to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian turn, Associates interview series on and radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. And as part of our February Black History Month, today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates Black History Month author interview series. And we have an excellent program about black history, black power, and the civil rights movement from 1966. Our guest today is Smithsonian Associate, journalist, and author Mark Whitaker, who has written the new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest today with author Mark Whitaker, who is a journalist and author, and who, after reading his new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, the year black power challenged the civil rights movement. I've been looking forward to speaking with him for a while. I'll introduce him in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 696th episode when I spoke to 79-year-old author Rick Blyweiss, who is the perfect example of the saying, you're never too old to follow your dreams. Two weeks ago, I spoke with author Susan shapiro Barish about her Valentine's Day book, a passion for more, affairs that make or break us. Wonderful subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you miss those shows along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. Join us today as we talk with journalist and author Mark Whitaker for an exploration of the momentous year of 1966, in which many in our Not Old Better Show audience will recall, well, there was a new sense of black identity that was expressed in the slogan, Black Power, which challenged the nonviolent civil rights philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis. Mark Whitaker will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details about Mark Whitaker at Smithsonian Associates. Mark Whitaker and I will discuss the dramatic events In this seminal year, from Stokely Carmichael's middle-of-the-night ouster of moderate icon John Lewis as chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC, S-N-C-C, to Stokely Carmichael's impassioned cry of black power during a protest march in rural Mississippi. We'll talk about the founding of the Black Panther Party, known as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to the origins of Kwanzaa, the black arts movement, and the first black studies programs, and from Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s ill-fated campaign to take the civil rights movement north to Chicago to the wrenching ousting of the white members of SNCC. Mark Whitaker offers portraits of the major characters in the year-long drama and provides new details and insights from the key players and journalists who covered the story. Mark Whitaker and I will discuss why the lessons from 1966 still resonate in an era of Black Lives Matter and the fierce contemporary battles over voting rights, identity politics, and the teaching of black history. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates author, interview series during Black History Month, Smithsonian Associate, Mark Whitaker. Mark Whitaker, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for taking some time and talking to us. Of course, we're going to chat about your new book, Saying It Loud. We're going to talk a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and what you'll what you'll share with us there? Well, I'll, I'll talk about what I write about in the book, which is how um, the civil rights movement uh, changed quite significantly uh, in uh, the year 1966 as the result of uh, a young, more militant uh, black generation uh, sort of coalescing around the slogan black power uh, and everything that stood for, and how um, there are really three parts of the story. There's a, a political part in terms of a new sort of political agenda they had. There's a cultural part, which was about an assertion of black pride and identity and consciousness. And then there's also uh, the story of the backlash. Uh, to all of that, which um, uh, turned uh, 1966 into a significant year uh, in U.S. politics as well. Yeah, thank you for that. And I do want to talk to you a little bit about the the, the subjects, particularly the backlash. But uh, let's let's start. The the book is excellent. Uh, and thank you again for sharing it with me. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I think my audience is going to too. This is just right uh, right. In the kind of the sweet spot of, of some of, of my audience's history, uh, again, saying it loud, 1966, the year Black Power challenged the civil rights movement. Let's start with that, a story I just was very unfamiliar with, despite this kind of being somewhat of, of my uh, you know age group's history. The story of Sammy Youngy. I, I'm not sure, quite sure how to pronounce that. It's it, it was pronounced Young, but yeah, Young. Uh huh. It has an E at the end. It has a, yeah. And so it, it's an amazing story. And I, I wonder if you'd start there with us because it start, it's your first chapter in the book and it takes place in Tuskegee. And maybe tell us a little bit about him. Yeah. So S- Sammy Young was uh, uh, born into the black middle class, grew up in Tuskegee, uh, Alabama. Uh, his father worked at the Veterans Hospital there. They were well off enough that he actually briefly went to prep school in the Northeast um, after high school, he joined the military. Uh, he had some health issues. He left the military and he enrolled at the Tuskegee Institute, uh, founded by Booker T. Washington, uh, in, uh, in 1966. Um, and, you know, he, he, he was sort of a party boy. He wasn't really that interested in politics, but, uh, he, he got involved after the bloody Sunday, uh, uh, the, 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 at, in, uh, during the Selma March in 1965, um, uh, when John Lewis and others were beaten on the Selma Bridge, uh, the students at Tuskegee uh, decided to go to Montgomery to stage their own uh, protest. Anyway, so then he, he got more and more involved in ca- campus activism. Um, and uh, on the third day of the year, uh, he had spent the day registering blacks in the area to vote. He goes to a party on campus. Um, uh, towards midnight, everybody gets hungry. They have some. They find some tuna fish in the apartment where the the party was taking place, but they want to. Ha- uh, there's no mayonnaise to make sandwiches, so he volunteers because he was pretty well off. He had a car, uh, a Volkswagen Beetle. He volunteered to drive into town to pick up some mayonnaise and some cigarettes for somebody who had run out. He goes into a convenience store uh, next to the gas station in town. There's this elderly uh, white man clerk behind the counter. He asks, Sammy asks to use the indoor restroom 
in the store. And the man says, no, 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 um, you're black. You have to go out back to, to use the, the, the restroom outside. Uh, they have an argument about it. The man pulls a gun. Sammy leaves, tries to get out of there. The clerk follows him outside the store and shoots him dead. Um, and this was quite sig significant for uh, a lot of black students uh, throughout the South and elsewhere in America because unlike, you know, students had been involved, uh, you know, in the, in the sit-in movement and, and the freedom rides and so forth. But they, they had kind of chosen potentially to put themselves in harm's way. Here was someone who, uh, the first uh, black student to be killed essentially on campus, just, you know, kind of living their life on campus in a town that was considered relatively uh, calm uh, in, in, in the midst of that, that civil rights era. Um, and it really kind of like sort of it, it, it had got some press coverage, but not a huge amount. It's not a story that most people remember as being one of the you know decisive moments. But again, since I was I'm talking in the book about uh, the, the change in consciousness of this young black generation, it had a major impact with that. And particularly it had an impact because it was. Just in, in terms of the title of the book, it, it was January 3rd, 1966, that this murder took place. And then the shopkeeper was acquitted. Uh, yes. In, yes. In just well, that, that, was, that was typical of the era. You know, it was, it was an mm -hmm. all-white jury. Mm -hmm. He was acquitted, you know, in, in an hour or so. Um, they, they barely deliberated. Um, yes, but, but a, this is the third. And what I do through the book is um, I... Uh, each chapter, the, the, the story of the birth of black power unfolds throughout the year uh, in different places. Uh, there are major events that happen in the South, that happen uh, in, uh, uh, in Atlanta, that happen eventually in, in, in California, in the Bay Area, uh, in, in Los Angeles. And so I sort of take you chronologically through the year all of these significant events, mm -hmm. each situated in a different place. Yeah, I, I'm I'm 66. I I grew up in Northern California. I was I was born in the Bay Area. I remember the Black Panther Party forming in Oakland, California, very well. And and as you take us through the story of of the emergence of Black Power, the press played a role in perhaps inflaming. Maybe that's not the best word to use, but uh, you know. It, just creating an environment that led to some distortion of what black power really kind of stood for. And, and as a member of the media yourself, I wonder if you comment a little bit about some of that and what the media did to perhaps it was ratings based, but these chants of black power that took place at the Meredith March in Mississippi were really probably different probably a different intention than really how the press was painting it. Would, would you agree with that? I, I do. I do. So, so as you say, the, 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 the slogan became uh, famous after Sophie Carmichael chanted it uh, during a speech in the middle of the Meredith March, uh, which was this March in favor of voting rights uh, that happened during the summer across Mississippi. Um, and um, you know, what, what, you know, he, he, it was actually it was a there there, were, there wasn't a lot of press at the rally, but there was an AP reporter who reported the scene of Stokely shouting "Black Power" in this 500 
black folks who had been on the march or you know were in uh, uh, lived in the area gathered um, chanted back black power what do we want black power black power um, and I, I I could count it now because of uh, these online archives newspapers.com uh, more than 200 newspapers across the country picked up that wire service so all of a sudden everybody's talking about black power three days later Stokely is booked on face the nation to be uh, in Washington uh, to make his first appearance on national TV. Well, you know, in fact, the the black power, what Stokely was talking about was something that he had done uh, over the previous year in Lowndes County, Alabama, where he was a field organizer, another small rural place where not only he had, he had taken the idea of registering black voters one step further, um, and once he had uh, registered uh, uh, over a thousand black voters in a place where blacks hadn't been allowed to vote in 60 years, uh, because of voter suppression, uh, which was, you know, impressive enough. He actually working with local activists in the area, uh, in organized them to form their, their own independent political party so that they could nominate their own candidates for local office, like sheriff and the school board and, and so forth. Um, so when Stokely first started talking about black power, that was it. It was essentially, let's not just get the right to vote. Let's flex in places where we have a critical mass of voting power. Let's flex our muscle and elect our own candidates, like elect black candidates to office, which of course, you know, today does not at all sound like that radical an idea. However, however, the press immediately, uh, uh, focused on the issue of violence versus nonviolence. And it was true that Stokely, one, another thing that Stokely was saying, and again, as someone who had spent all this time organizing the Deep South, where the Ku Klux Klan um, uh, you know, uh, uh, operated with impunity, where blacks had shotguns to defend themselves, uh, he said, look, you know, we, we think we're not calling for violence, but we think blacks should at least have a right to defend themselves when an attack. Um, and but the press immediately focused on that issue and and the idea that that this is that that, that black power was mostly about blacks arming themselves, uh, potentially you know uh, preparing for you know armed armed uprising, uh, and that all of this. Uh, Stokely as being kind of the antithesis and a nemesis to Martin Luther King Jr. and, you know, his message of nonviolence. And, you know, I, I mentioned that so that on that first fascination appearance, three days after he chants black power, all the all the reporters who are questioning want to do is talk about this issue. Where, well, are, are you calling for violence now? Um, so and as I show throughout the rest of the book, the way in which the press covered black power had a big impact on how it was perceived. And then ultimately, Stokely and others started partly out of exasperation and, you know, becoming, you know, actually more militant as time went on. Um, they sort of, in some ways, fed into the narrative um, uh, that was created by, by, the, uh, by the media, or at least, or at least didn't do enough to make clear what they were talking about. So it allowed the media to continue the distortion. The other thing that I thought was fascinating, just as I didn't know anything about Sammy Young, I 
I didn't know anything about Reverend Willie Witt Ricks. And this was a term, this was a phrase, the black power phrase was tested. There was thought given into this. There was a great deal of consideration about when and where to use this and how. And and that was just – it came out in the book, of course, you know, in a very meaningful way, but that was ignored as, by the press. Yeah, so, so Willie Ricks was another SNCC organizer. Uh, he uh, grew, grew up in Chattanooga, um, and he was known – he wasn't actually a reverend, but his nickname was the reverend because he was such – uh, a, 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 a fiery, you know, uh, engaging speaker, very passionate. And um, it was really, he was the one who started, uh, you know, sort of road testing uh, the Black Power slogan. Um, during, so, so, you know, before 1966, the chant that was, you know, was often heard at, at civil rights protests was freedom now. And it, in, in a call and response fashion. So speakers would say, what do we want? And the crowd would yell, freedom now. Well, so uh, really Wicks was the first one to go into black churches uh, during the Meredith, at the very beginning of the Meredith March. Um, and he'd be talking to these local, you know, crowds. And he'd say, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to call, you know, chant freedom now anymore. We're going to, what we're going to say now is black power, right? And he'd get these, you know, crowds, these small crowds chanting black power and he'd shout black power and they'd shout black power. And so he he actually went to Stokely, uh, who had just taken over as the chairman of SNCC, uh, ousting John Lewis, which is another dramatic story that I tell in the book. Anyway, and said to him, you know, I'm getting this, you know, amazing response to the term black power. People are real, you know, people really love it. They really, you know. Um, and at first, actually, according to Ricks, Stokely was a little bit hesitant. Um, he wasn't quite sure, but then eventually he was convinced. And, um, I think also on the day when he finally used the slogan, um, he, he, they arrived in, in, in Greenwood, Mississippi in the middle, in the middle of the Meredith March, a place where Stokely had, had worked before as an organizer. So he knew people in the community. He reaches out to um, the, a local black segregated school in Greenwood and gets permission for tents to be erected there so that the, the marchers could stay overnight. And he's helping to put up the, t- the, the, the tents, and all of a sudden the police chief and the deputies arrive and tell them they're breaking the law, and they arrest Stokely and, and throw him in jail for, for, the, for the afternoon. Um, so when he, when he finally gets out in the evening and he goes and they, you know, the, 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 this rally is started in, in a sandlot field in the middle of Greenwood, he gets on the back of, of a, uh, of, uh, of a truck to address the crowd. And as he's about to, you know, he, Willie Ricks whispers in his ear, drop it now. They're ready. Drop it now. <laughs> and so, and he's, you know, he's, he's mad because of everything that's happened all day long. And he's really ready to go. And there's actually, you know, footage of this, um, brief footage that was shot. It wasn't aired at the time, but it later aired on a CBS news special hosted by Mike Wallace um, later that year, where you see the scene of Stokely, you know, his sweat is going on his face and he's just pumping his fist and saying, we want black power. And you can hear 
the crowd. You can see the crowd chanting back. It's really it's really quite dramatic. During this time, during during 1966, what was the black middle class opinion of the Black Panther Party known known then too as the Black Panther Party for Self Defense? Yes. Yeah, so, well, there are two Black Panther parties. So that that first uh, party that uh, Stokely organized in Lowndes County adopted as its symbol a Black Panther, uh, partly because under state law um, in Alabama, political parties had to have a symbol that could be recognized by people who couldn't read. Uh, and, you know, there were black people, but also a lot of white people who, 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 couldn't, who couldn't read in the state. Anyway, that, and, and later in the year, that same Black Panther, literally not only the, the, the idea, but the drawing, that had been created for the Lowndes County Party in Alabama was adopted by uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, who started the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense that you remember growing up on the West Coast in Oakland. That's where that mm-hmm. started. Mm-hmm. So when you think that, yes. and that was just, that happened all within the course uh, of this one year. Well, you know- With the, that same drawing. Yes, the exact same symbol and drawing. They just- Appropriate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they, yeah. they, um, anyway, so um, the, the opinion of the of the middle class, um, you know, I think uh, the, it's interesting. Newsweek magazine, where I used to work, I, I wasn't working there at the time, obviously, but um, uh, commissioned uh, a major poll in the middle of 1966 on race relations. And they had done a similar poll in 1963. And in those three years, despite the fact that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had passed, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had passed. So on the surface, it looked like there had been progress in race relations. What it actually showed was that there was more discontent on both sides. That, uh, and, and the poll was the, the Lewis Harris, the famous pollster who had commissioned this poll, who, who conducted the poll, sent separate a black team of pollsters to talk to black folks and white team to talk to white folks. And what and what they found on among the black respondents was increasing impatience. Yes, things had changed, some things had gotten better, but basically things weren't weren't changing fast enough. Uh, among the whites, um, uh, there was a feeling of, you know, blacks are asking for, for too much. This is all moving too fast. Um, we don't think they were they were you know they, they were clearly uh, alarmed about the slogan black power. Um, they were upset about uh, you know the fact that you know in 1966 as in 1965 there had been several outbursts that they were called riots at the time. Some people think they should be called rebellions, whatever urban unrest. Um, so all of a sudden they are less supportive of the overall civil rights uh, project even nonviolent um, protest. But it's interesting because even though um, there, uh, the polls showed that Dr. King was still the most respected black leader in the country, and only something like 19% of people really said that they supported Stokely Carmichael uh, as a figure, partly because I think he was still pretty new on the scene. Not everybody knew who he was. Um, but the, the idea of black power when they were um, when that when 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 the pollsters asked, well, what do you think about black power? There was actually pretty wide support for it. Um, uh, uh, 
you know, both among young people in particular, but even among some older folks. And so, you know, I think it was partly because the way black power was perceived immediate, almost immediately, you know, as wasn't just, uh, didn't just have to do with the political message, but also a cultural message of black pride um, and black identity. So this is also the year 1966, where black folks say, we don't want to be called Negroes anymore. We want to be called black, uh, where they say, we don't have to want to straighten our hair anymore. So the Afro becomes uh, uh, more popular. Uh, people start getting in touch with their African roots and wearing daishikis. Uh, by the end of the year, the first Kwanzaa is celebrated. So um, so in the minds, you know, the press was treating black, you know, black power as this radical political statement. But for a lot of black folks, certainly young black folks, but even some older black folks, it was as, as much about this issue of, of black pride and black identity and black sense of, 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 of being more in touch with, with black history than, uh, than it was about the politics. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with journalist and author Mark Whitaker. Mark Whitaker has written the new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement. Mark Whitaker will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates. Coming up, we'll put links so that our audience can find out more information about Mark Whitaker his new book, and his presentation upcoming at Smithsonian Associates. Mark, let, let's talk for just a moment about this idea of backlash and and this idea of, of the discontent at the time. There was this increasing impatience. Um, there, there was resentment over, over being uh, overly policed. Opportunities within uh, black neighborhoods were drying up. Um, and, and you talk in the book a little bit about th- that period – and its relationship to even some of the marches during 2020. And I, I wonder if you talk about that a little bit more. We're, we're seeing that. It's probably only perhaps getting worse, and, and we're living with that now. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, when you look, I mean, there, there, there are very strong parallels with the Black Lives Matter movement. First of all, that started as a response to police violence uh, in black communities, which has just continued and continued and continued. Uh, despite all the, the the protests and the attention that's been paid to it, and similarly, the uh, you know the other thing that Black Power was on the political side was a response to I talked about you know political organizing, but also it was very explicitly the Black Panther Party for Self Defense in Oakland. Their main project at the beginning was monitoring the behavior of the police. Um, they were going to go around. Uh, taking advantage of open carry gun laws in California at the time, it was legal to 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 carry guns as long as they were visible, um, and just to keep an eye on police. They weren't going to. It wasn't initially about confronting the police, um, but it was just to sort of you know go around town, 
uh, and, uh, and, and look for situations where police were interacting with uh, the black population and just, you know, get out of the car and just stand across the street and let the cops know that they, you were watching them, right? And when you think about today, why do we know about all these horrific uh, incidents um, uh, over the last decade? Um, that have gotten so much attention. It's because of cell phones. It's because of, of police body cams. That didn't exist at the time. So it was kind of like there were going to be uh, human witnesses. Um, and, you know, it, Black Lives Matter also was a slogan like Black Power that spoke to people around which people galvanized. Um, so, um, so, you know, I definitely see the, uh, the current generation of Black Power activists as sort of the heirs of this black power tradition. But, you know, I think that um, there is, I think, some value uh, in, in revisiting the, the black power period. And, 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 you know, I hope one thing that my book, you know, purpose it serves beyond just being, you know, good, readable history um, is that I think there are lessons that can be drawn um, for, for today, um, uh, some, some lessons about how to do things and then some lessons about how not to do things. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a question about, about that in just a moment. But I, I also want to talk about the photographs in the book because um, the book is wonderful and it is this mm. very readable history. Again, our guest is Mark Whitaker. He's written the new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement. I'll, I'll tell you some of my favorites, and, and you you pick one and maybe talk, talk about it, but I love the picture, and I just want to recommend this book to, to my audience. Pick up the book, read it, look at these photos because they, they really are amazing, Mark Whitaker. The cover photo is fantastic, too, because you talked about um, – Martin Luther King and and his his prominence in in the movement and Stokely Carmichael and perhaps not as well known they're pictured on the cover and that's just fantastic because there was this split the philosophical difference between uh, those two men a great deal of respect for for one another although the press perhaps tried to um, paint that a little differently there's also another picture of Ella Baker and her role uh, this very godmotherly looking photo of her she's she's just a, a lovely person and a beautiful picture and then the picture that i thought was amazing too was john lewis that's picture number two in the book he of course was chair of snick um mm-hmm. uh, in 1963 he he lost the election to to be re-elected chair to stokely carmichael but he was viewed as more of the um perhaps more the the middle of the road uh leadership and then Stokely Carmichael took over. Yet the picture that I'm looking at in the book of uh, John Lewis, again, that's picture number two in the book, he looks very defiant and very purposeful and very strong-willed. Mm. And, of course, that's the John Lewis, John Lewis that we, we, we knew and, and uh, know of and his, his politics. But pick one of those pictures, if you would, and tell us about what, which one of those three is maybe your favorite and why. And again, the cover photo is so amazing. So your choice. Yeah, well, the cover, the cover photo was taken during the Meredith March in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia Mississippi, where the three young um, civil rights workers had been killed uh, famously in, in ni- during Freedom Summer in 1964. And during the, the Meredith March, actually, Philadelphia 
Mississippi was not on the main route that they were taking, but they made a detour um, to, 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 to visit there to, to, uh, to commemorate that. Uh, and, and, and were greeted <laughs> yet again by, you know, uh, by white crowds that, you know, were quite um, uh, unruly and kind of showed just how little they, anything had really changed as a result of um, those horrific murders uh, coming to light. Um, and I think it also shows that despite, as you said, the press was covering Stokely um, as though he was this, you know, sort of uh, fire-breathing militant who was challenging um, or, 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 you know, rejecting everything that Martin Luther King stood for. And he did have a more militant message, but they actually were quite fond of each other and had a lot of respect uh, for each other. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I demonstrate that in the book. Um, and then the John Lewis uh, photo, you know, it's interesting because jo so John Lewis had become the head of SNCC, as you say, shortly before the March on Washington in 1963, had given, you know, uh, a great speech there. And then after he was beaten on the Pettus Bridge in 65 during the Selma March, he became famous. Um, and he spent the, the year after that, up until 1966, most of it on the road, you know, uh, raising money. Uh, raising awareness, giving speeches. And, but the, the cost of that was that he got a little bit of out of, out of touch with, um, with the rank and file within the, the, um, with, within the organization. He didn't realize that the mood had shifted, uh, that there was this more militant mood. Um, and uh, in, when he's, he was, this, this vote to remove him uh, or where Stokely was was elected the new chairman happened during a retreat uh, in in uh, in a place called Kingston Springs uh, near Nashville in the spring of 1966, and he had been traveling abroad and arrived very exhausted and jet lagged, expecting to be reelected easily. And actually, on the last day of the retreat, when they had the vote, he was reelected in the first ballot. But a lot of, you know, there are people who were ambivalent. They respected him. They didn't really want to vote against him, so they abstained. And somebody used that as a pretext to say, well, the first vote didn't really count because not enough people voted. And then, you know, it, 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 there was a, a huge debate that grew angrier and angrier and more heated through the night all the way till dawn. And finally, uh, just at the crack of dawn, they hold a second vote, and he's and he's voted out. And, you know, we remember John Lewis for everything you said. Um, and uh, but that experience being ousted in that way from SNCC, which was, you know, he had given his life and almost lost his life repeatedly uh, for SNCC. It really crushed him. Um, and, you know, he he soldiered on. He refused to complain to the press. But he left the organization a few months later, and it took him almost two decades to really get his footing. And then eventually he returns to Atlanta. He runs for uh, the city council and then runs for Congress and then, you know, um, becomes, you know, the sainted, you know, congressman, um, uh, uh, one of the deans of the Congressional Black Caucus and so forth. But... Um, the, uh, the, the, this episode, it's very, very dramatic. It's very moving. I have a whole chapter about what happened to him uh, at that retreat. Um, 
And, um, you know, I think it's a different, it's another side of John Lewis that not everybody knows or remembers. Mark Whitaker, our guest today, uh, thank you for your time and for this wonderful book. I, I, I do want to, I, I do want to ask you this, this final question though about lessons. And, and I wonder if you'd share with us, what, what do you believe is the lasting impact of, of black power, certainly as it started in 1966 on, on white Americans today? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, honestly, I think, um, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's been this whole, you know, controversy over the teaching of black history and the AP black mm-hmm. history course, studies course that um, mm-hmm. uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, wanted to, to ban. Um, and um, the, you know, when you listen to DeSantis, it sounds like the whole purpose of teaching black history is to make white people feel bad, white students feel bad about their privilege and about uh, white supremacy. And in fact, um, that wasn't the original idea of black studies at all. They were, you know, at the, at the beginning, black students were calling for black studies for themselves. They wanted to learn more about black history uh, and, and it to be recognized as, you know, uh, its role in uh, in American history. Um, so, you know, I think that um, the even then and today, I think my view is that, you know, for white folks, you know, it is not, you know, obviously there is a militant side of it um, uh, then and now. Um, but really, you know, it's not black folks in 1966 and today um, are not it's, it's not a threat. You know, um, they're not threatening the white white America. They're just asking um, to, first of all, you know, for to be be able to live, <laughs> to not be you know killed uh, just for, you know, driving their car, or riding around and so forth and so on as as sadly all too uh, uh, often happens. But, you know, to have their place in America and their place in American history recognized. And honestly, I think that in today's America, um, with, you know, the increasingly diverse population, people of different groups, people of different orientations, the way to keep America working as a society is not, as DeSantis would seem to want to do, to sort of force everybody to go back to teaching only one kind of history, which is sort of essentially white male dominated history, um, only sort of having one way of being American, but recognizing that people can have different cultures um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, different parts of their history recognized. Um, and and at the same time, feel that they have a stake in being American um, and the continuation of the great American democratic um, experiment. And and in fact, I would say that that experiment will be healthier going into the future if everybody is allowed to simultaneously, uh, black folks but other folks as well, to you know, celebrate their own identity, their communal pride, and their their own role in in our history. Um, so I think that's 
kind of, to me, the lasting lesson of all of this for white America. Thank you. Mark Whitaker, our guest today, will be at Smithsonian Associates. Coming up, please check our show notes for more information about Mark Whitaker and his excellent new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement. Mark, thanks for your time. Thanks for the great book, for all of the uh, the research. Um, again, the photos are, are really amazing. And... Um, and this important message. So we appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you at Smithsonian Associates coming up. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. My thanks to author and Smithsonian Associate Mark Whitaker and his new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement. Mark Whitaker will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details about Mark Whitaker at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show, especially during Black History Month. You'll find more information about Black History Month in our show notes today. My thanks to you, my wonderful, not old, better show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I'm mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which aren't safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, let's work together to eliminate assault rifles, and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates, author interview series, Black History Month specials. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. To every purpose under heaven.